we come to God's Word. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for the chance to read this story and to remember your death for us. And uh, now we pray as we think about its significance that you would meet us here, uh, grow us, uh, work in our hearts, that we might believe the message and trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's the story. That, that's the historical account of what we're celebrating tonight. Here's the question. Have you ever doubted that it's true? You ever had a moment in your life where you doubt, is Christianity really true? Did these things really happen? Um, I can remember... Uh, as a teenager moving into adulthood, having grown up in the church, heard this story dozens of times, many, many Good Fridays, many Easter Sundays, lots of Sunday school lessons with the felt board and all that. And, And I remember coming to a point where it was like, I had to decide, do I really believe this? Is this true? It's interesting as you read the account in the Gospels and even the account leading up to uh, Good Friday, doubt is all over this story. The disciples doubted, the people doubted, only John shows up to the crucifixion, Pilate asks, who are you? Doubt is a part of this and if you've ever doubted Christianity or if you've ever doubted the reality of the history of this message, then this text is for you. Because what we're going to see in our short time tonight is is God put into this story four irrefutable proofs that this is true. That this actually happened so that we can be confident to have a faith and a trust in Jesus and what these events represent. So if you've got Matthew open there, uh, let's look back at a few of these We want to reaffirm the reality, the truthfulness of what this story represents. First of all, we need to get a little bit of a running start because these proofs, these evidences that God builds into the story of Good Friday didn't start at Good Friday. They started way, way back. That's why uh, it was neat to hear the whole story from the moment that Jesus entered the temple as, as a baby all the way through the crucifixion night. The, the, the biblical writers are trying to convey to us all throughout the gospel story that Jesus really is the Messiah. And they do that in multiple ways. So just a little bit of background before we get to, to Matthew 27. Throughout the gospel, okay, Jesus' power over the universe. We see this over and over again. It demonstrates the reality of his deity and his credibility as his claim to be the Messiah. The, the biblical writers are going to say over and over again, Only God can do this. Look what Jesus just did. And particularly his power over the universe as we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 27. And in fact, Jesus often used physical miracles to illustrate his power to to perform unseen spiritual tasks. You say, what do you mean by that? You, You remember the... The, the guy that couldn't walk, the leper, and they put him on the pallet and they bring him in and the house, the crowds, the house is crowded, they can't get in, and so what do they do? They take the roof apart and they drop him in through the roof and, and, and Jesus has this discussion and, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
And the Pharisees are scoffing, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what does Jesus do? He heals him physically to illustrate that he really is God and has the authority to forgive his sins, right? So he uses the physical miracle to illustrate the reality that as God, he can do spiritual things like forgiving sin. And then we see in the New Testament writers later on after the Gospels that Jesus is said by the Apostle Paul in Colossians and in Hebrews that he is the one. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Right, right now, this very moment, Colossians reminds us that Jesus holds every atom of the universe together. It's all being run by him. Jesus is the man behind the curtain running every molecule in the known world. So with that background in mind, the gospel writers have been trying to help us to see Jesus is the Messiah because he can do these things. And now as we come to this night, to Good Friday, to the crucifixion, God's going to bring all of this to a climax by showing us these four proofs in the spirit of what the gospels have been saying all along that he really is the Messiah. And I think this is, this is good for us just to reaffirm that these things are really true. So let's look at proof number one. He has power over the heavens. Look at this. Matthew chapter 27. Look back at the text with me and look at verse 45. 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. So let's stop right there. What happens, and we need to remind ourselves because we use a little bit different time rendering day, the sixth hour to the ninth hour is about 12 p.m., high noon to 3 p.m., okay? So for those, those three hours, the sun is darkened. Interesting, looking at the language here, uh, Luke says the sun was obscured. Uh, the ESV renders that the sun's light failed. Uh, the word means to fail or to die out or to be no longer in existence, to cease, and uh, my, my favorite and most reliable dictionary talking about this phraseology says, quote, Luke's diction is standard for the description of an eclipse. So as soon as high noon rolls around, Jesus is on the cross, what happens? That happens. And we think, wow, okay, isn't that cool? God aligned the timing of a solar eclipse with Jesus being on the cross. There's just one little thing Wrong, actually, there's two little things wrong with that. Now, certainly it was like a solar eclipse, but what's, what's the problem with that? The problem is that a solar eclipse lasts at most eight minutes. How long did this happen? Three hours. Too long to be a natural solar eclipse. The other problem is that solar eclipses can only happen during a new moon. You say, without getting into all of that, when was the Passover... What season was the Passover occurring? Jesus is on the cross, right? It's Passover season. When does that happen? Right smack dab in the middle of a lunar month. Well, the new moon happens at the beginning and end of the month, doesn't it? So it's the wrong season for solar eclipses. It's too long. It's the wrong season. So our conclusion is this could not have been a natural eclipse. It must have been a supernatural darkness. God is darkening the heavens to put the spotlight, as it were, on the stage of history on what's happening to Jesus on the cross. 
Now, just as a footnote of that, just, just to make your mind hurt a little bit, Jesus is on the cross suffering. What else is he doing? He's running the universe. He's causing the very darkness that this story tells us is happening. He's illustrating his power as God even as he's suffering as our substitute on the cross. He illustrates once again that he is God. He has power over the heavens and this supernatural dark. Wouldn't that be weird? You just go outside at noon one day and dark. Oh, solar eclipse. Isn't that interesting? And it stays dark. And it's dark. And, and it's eerily dark, right? And, and again, God is, is changing the normality of the heavens to put the focus on what's happening to his son. That's, that's irrefutable proof number one. That doesn't happen. This is a supernatural darkness. So look at the second proof. Looking back at the story here, the second irrefutable proof that these things are true and that Jesus really is the Messiah. Look at this. Power over the earth. Looking back at verse, uh, chapter 27 uh, and verse, um, where are we at here? Verse 51. And, uh, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Yielded up his spirit, verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is, this is a perfectly timed divine earthquake. Now, I grew up on the West Coast. Earthquakes were pretty common. Okay, how many of you guys have been in an earthquake before? Been in an earthquake? Kind of scary. Out here we have tornadoes. Typically you have Weather people telling us, hey, the conditions are right, prepare for the, for the tornado, or uh, the East Coast, a hurricane, right? You can see it on the, on the radar coming, you can kind of prepare for it. Uh-uh, not with earthquakes. It's like, boom, and, and you're in it. And it's a little one or two earthquake, okay, you might wake up and go, oh, hey, we're having an earthquake. If it's like a five or a seven, it is the scariest thing in the world when you can't trust the very ground under your feet. So look at what's God, look at what God's doing. He's suspending normality in the heavens. The sun is dark for a long time. He is jeopardizing the ground under our own feet in this earthquake and the rocks are split, right? Literally from heaven to earth, he's communicating. Something is really significant that's happening now. He's, he's using the universe to get our attention. And we remember looking at our Bibles that really what we call natural disaster, disasters and weather are really just metaphors for the power and wisdom of God. Think of what Nahum says. Nahum's trying to describe, you don't need to turn there. Nahum tries to describe the wrath of God that's coming in judgment. And the best he can do is to compare it to what? One of those good old-fashioned Texas thunderstorms where you see that thing. Well, not Texas thunderstorm, obviously. He wasn't in Texas. But, but the, you know, it's, it's coming on the horizon. It's building. And then the wind and the lightning and the hail and the rain. And Nahum says that's what God's like in the day of judgment. And it makes us think of Jesus in his life on earth when he's out on the boat. Remember that? The storm comes up. The disciples think they're going to die. And Jesus gets up, maybe yawns, and what does he do? He rebukes the weather, and it obeys him. And the disciples, the text tells us, are incredibly frightened. Not because they're going to die in the weather, 
but because they realize who they're with in the boat. Remember what they say? Who is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Right? Testifying to his godness. Testifying that this is really the Messiah. Well, here he is on the cross again doing what? The sun is darkened. The earth is quaking. Again, the the universe that Christ in that moment is controlling is screaming that something significant is happening. This is important. Pay attention. So we see power over the heavens. We see power over the earth. Watch this. Power to bring access. Same verse. Look back at the text. Verse 51. What does it say? And Jesus cried out, lifted up, yielded up his spirit. Verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you can ask any third to sixth grader in our church about this veil and they can tell you about it. Where, where, am I, where am I? Tea and tears. You got tea and tears? Okay, I got some there. Tea and tears. Where are you? Okay, right? They're gonna, the, the old people are going to come talk to you after the service, okay? So you, don't let me down. Uh, we're going through Exodus in our TNT, our third to sixth grade Bible time on Wednesday night. We're looking at the tabernacle. We just talked about this, this veil. This veil represented the reality that sinful people and a holy God cannot coexist. That veil in tabernacle and later on in the temple represented the separation that sin creates between people and God. And since I know you, you, you slept through a, a Bible class on this, check this out. Here's our temple. Okay, this is Herod's temple. You see the outside there. The Gentiles couldn't go beyond the outside. And then inside, that's where the ladies could go, but couldn't go any further. The men could go and then the priests. And then that big, tall structure, right, there that's the holy place and if we zoom in if you look at the very back of that there's another rendering kind of looking down the middle there's a little side view and then if we look at that tall structure there to give you an idea of, of how tall it was inside you see there's this little room in the back right there and that was called what kids what was that called The most holy place, that's right, or the holy of holies. And to separate, uh, well, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there in that day. Originally, that's where it was, was this veil, this curtain that separated what represented God with the people from everybody else. That veil represented the separation that sin creates between people and God. And there was only one time a year that someone was allowed to go back there. What, What was that time? Do you remember? What's that? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? When atonement was offered, okay? So, so think about this here. Uh, it's hard to get a, a semblance of what the curtain actually looked like. If it looked like the tabernacle, it was ornate. It had cherubim decorated on it there. Um, but just, just some ideas here. This veil is 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. It was actually two veils in Jesus' day, separated by a foot and a half. Tradition says it took 300 priests to hang this thing. What happens is Jesus yields up his spirit. It tears from top to bottom. And like I told the kids Wednesday night, I guarantee you, whoever the priest was on duty that night had a panic attack. That was probably the scariest sound that any Levitical priest ever heard. That was like, uh uh-oh. 
because it, it communicated immediate danger. What's the point of it? What, what's the point of this veil being torn from top to bottom? No priest would ever do that. No one's going to go in there and sneak in there, you know, some teenage prank. No one would dare to even go near this thing. What, what, what do we make out of this? Well, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews interprets this. Look what it says. Hebrews says, In light of what happened, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from evil... What's he saying? When that veil came down, it opened up access to God. What Christ was doing on the cross was making access available to God by being that atoning sacrifice represented by the Day of Atonement. And that veil being torn was one further proof that this is really the Messiah. He's really dying on the cross. He really is making atonement for sin so that God and sinners can be reconciled. That's the third proof. There's one more proof I want you to see that that, that just is irrefutable. Power in the heavens, power on the earth, power to make access by just tearing this this six-inch diameter, if you include the space between it, a, a veil in half, Here's, here's the final proof. Power over death. Look back at the text, verse 52. This is where it gets really weird. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Don't you wish you were there when that call went down from heaven? Paging Mrs. Smith. Paging Mrs. Smith. I've got a mission for you. I want you to leave the heavenlies and go back to earth and testify to your family (laughs) that Jesus has done it. He's conquered death. He's made atonement. He's opened up Can you imagine when great-grandma walks in on Easter morning? And you know, the the, the human part of us say, oh, it's great to have grandma back. This is amazing. No, grandma's not there to say, hey, I'm back. I know you missed me. She's there to say, Jesus is real. He's done it. It's really true. And, and Matthew's, this is why I said it gets, it gets weird. The text seems to indicate they were actually raised from, uh, this is a partial resurrection. It doesn't say how many people, it's not everybody, but some special group of believers were resurrected, and then it says after Jesus' resurrection, they were, around, they were allowed to go out into the town and talk and share their testimony that Jesus had actually conquered the grave. Now, one of the things that the Bible writers like to do is put characters in the story that tell us the point. And not, they're not making stuff up. These are, this actually historically happened. But to put focus on characters in the story that help us, the reader, understand what are we supposed to do with this? What, what are we supposed to make out of this? And there's one character in this story that interprets these miracles. 
tell the, the one character that tells us exactly what we are supposed to get from all these miraculous signs. It's the centurion. Look with me back at the text, Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. And the centurion and those who were with him, other other guards, other soldiers, the centurion and those who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, these four irrefutable proofs, the centurion and the guys with him are looking at all this, and what's their conclusion? Truly, this was the Son of God. That's our takeaway, guys. You see... Those evidences were designed to demonstrate to the people that were there and by implication to us reading all these years later that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. This story really happened. This is not fantasy. This is not make-believe. This is really historically true. Jesus really is the Messiah. That means everything he taught is true, isn't it? That God is real. That he made us for relationship with him. That sin is real. That that our sin separates us from God. That Jesus is truly the Messiah through his death and resurrection to reconcile us to God if we will put our faith and trust in him. It's all true. So the question tonight is, Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Maybe you need to believe that for the first time tonight. Students, are you in that, are you in that season of life that I was years ago and you're trying to ask yourself the question is, do, am I going to believe this for myself? Or maybe for those of us that are older, life experiences, loss, grief, hard times, distractions from the world, a thousand things can contribute to us wondering, is this really true? And tonight is a night to reaffirm not just that these things are true, but that we will trust the Messiah, that we will trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior who really did make atonement for sin, who really did die in our place who really is the Savior of the world. Can I ask you a question? Where do you need to reaffirm your faith tonight? Do you need to do that tonight? To reaffirm that you believe this. We don't dip our toe into the pool of Christianity. We jump in the deep end of the pool. we got to be all in. Will you reaffirm your trust in the, in the Messiah tonight? Will you reaffirm that you believe this? And, and, the, and does your life demonstrate that you really do believe it? Well, there's one more evidence. It's the best evidence. But you've got to wait till Sunday to see that one. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminders that this is really true. Will you give us hearts to believe it, to reaffirm our faith and trust in Jesus, or to believe in him for salvation for the first time? Father, I pray that your word will minister to our doubt and minister to our distractions, and that tonight we would reaffirm that we are all in fully 
trusting in Jesus alone as our Savior. We're so thankful for the gift that you've given to us through Him. And we pray in His name. Amen.